Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021. And if you're watching, we hope you can make it uh, to that in-person event, but there will also be options to participate virtually. But our goal on these talks and the goal at our, at our conferences as well is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And if you've been tuning into SALT Talks over the past year or so, you've known that uh, we've done a series of SALT Talks on the digital asset space, but we also cover uh, sort of the traditional finance ecosystem as well, uh, big banks, hedge funds, institutions, and our guest today sort of blends those two worlds. Uh, his name is Brett Tagepaul. He is the head of institutional sales, trading, custody, and prime services at Coinbase, which is, uh, as you likely know, the leading company in the digital asset space recently went public via a, a direct listing. Uh, Brett joined Coinbase in April of 2020 after a 25-year career in the financial industry 1.0, as he calls it, at uh, JP Morgan initially, and then most recently at Barclays. Uh, he's an experienced builder in financial services, working with both institutional clients and fintech companies. Uh, at Coinbase, he's working to expand the institutional client base, build out the coverage team, introduce new features and services that institutional investors expect, and educate the institutional community about crypto as an asset class and its role within a diversified portfolio. And that's part of uh, a mission that we share at Skybridge uh, with what Brett is doing over there at Coinbase. In his most recent role at Barclays, he was the global head of sales. Uh, he developed large teams and incubated multiple business lines in that role. Uh, he pioneered the digital role across sales and trading, adopting new technologies and transforming existing platforms, including the creation of a digital bank prototype. So that sort of step fully into the digital asset world was a natural step for Brett um, you know, as he joined Coinbase again early in 2020. Uh, I'm hosting today's talk. So uh, again, I am a uh, managing director of SALT and also a director of business development at SkyBridge. Uh, if you're watching this, you probably know that SkyBridge has substantial investments into Bitcoin, uh, one of those institutions that's jumped on board uh, in late 2020 in our case. Uh, but excited to be hosting the talk here with you today, Brett. The first question I want to ask is about your background. So again, you joined Coinbase in April of 2020 to help lead the institutional side of the business. At that time, uh, Bitcoin was only about $7,000 a coin. It hadn't engaged in this sort of super cycle that we're in the midst of today as we talk. But why did you decide to ultimately make that leap? You're obviously uh, sort of straddling fintech and the financial system 1.0 over there at Barclays. But what gave you sort of the aha moment or the eureka moment to say, you know what, it's time to make that jump fully into digital assets? Well, uh, I became quite vocal about the fact that I thought uh, towards the end of my 17 years at, at Barclays that technology was finally going to disrupt the trading floor. And so uh, I wanted to do something about it and I pioneered that digital role. Uh, I was trying to help Barclays uh, look to the outside world instead of building everything, sort of buying it and importing outside technology. And I had some early success with that, but the more uh, success I had, the more conviction um, I had before looking um, in anticipation of, I, I think, uh, banking and finance really being uh, fundamentally disrupted. I had looked at um, opening an OTC trading desk uh, in, in June of 18 and concluded at the time for an OTC uh, crypto desk and concluded at the time that the infrastructure wasn't really there to support uh, the sort of scale of trading I thought we 
would have and and also in in a quite sort of regulatory heavy environment. But if you fast forward just just two years and took a second look at the crypto space, and I was amazed to see that the infrastructure I think had largely been solved for. So um, when, when when I then said, well, wh what's next? And if uh, if I had this sort of super high conviction, you know, view on both cryptocurrencies and digital assets, Coinbase was the only place to consider. Well, it's, it's certainly uh, been an interesting period from the time you joined to today. Uh, you know, Bitcoin has gone from today we're trading around fifty thousand from around $7,000 a coin. I'm sure it's been an interesting journey for you, to say the least. But Coinbase, I think, is known uh, in the public sphere more for its retail crypto trading business. So it's the, the dominant platform in the US for retail crypto trading across a variety of different crypto assets. But it also has a very robust uh, institutional side of the business, which you help lead. What does uh, Coinbase offer to the institutional community what does that institutional business look like? And what are reasons why, as people are evaluating the different options out there in the marketplace, they should look at using Coinbase? And the, the high level for institutions is we, we have a prime platform that ties together what I think is the, the best trading platform, uh, along with a qualified custodian, and then all the services that one would expect from a prime broker like, like financing. And so we also have an exchange, uh, which is uh, operated separately. Um, but I'm trying to raise the awareness uh, that you know Coinbase can be the go-to place for institutions. When I, when I think through sort of the, the top 10, if you like, reasons why um, an institution should consider uh, coming to Coinbase, I want to begin with trust. It's super important. So that's you know that that is at the top. And so trust, transparency. Uh, two, we're we're now a public company, right? And and so last week, in fact, we had had one of the world's larger hedge funds doing diligence on us for the past, you know, sort of five, six months. And at the end of the talks, they said, you know, we're really excited that you're going to be a public company because we don't want to be beholden to um, a show of private companies in the space. And we think that public companies are held to a higher standard. So I think that's important. Uh, three is we're regulated. So we operate as a New York trust company. We're a fiduciary under New York banking law and we're a qualified custodian under the Investment Advisors Act. We're money transmitter, so that means we we have to adhere to KYC and AML. Four, uh, we're secure. So the first line of defense is, uh, of course, our security protocols, and we've got an unblemished uh, track record in that respect. And the second line of defense is the largest insurance policy uh, in the industry. Uh, five, uh, product. So um, we have by far, I think, the best trading platform. We can go more into detail on why I think that's the case. Um, but I think it's second to none. Well, we're customers of that platform, so I can't argue with you on that one, but go ahead. Yep, thanks. We're also the largest custodian in the world. So we have a quarter trillion of assets on platform and roughly 50% of that, 122 billion is now institutional. When I started, um, it was it was actually less than 3 billion. Um, and then C, uh, on, on, on the product side, it, it, it's really the prime broker is a full solution. So it's important that every single thing that we do stands on its own. So you can pick and choose, you can buy here and, and store there. But I think I'm finding through experience that institutions want a, want a clustered seamless offering. Six, uh, and this is a good one, the largest and most sophisticated investors in the world have chosen us. And so we have, we, we, we have a, a long list of companies that are announcing uh, that they've come into the space. We've been fortunate to win exclusive mandates in, most, in, in pretty much all the cases. And uh, the second point I'd say is, there's a long list of companies that have made pretty significant investments that have yet to disclose uh, their, their participation. So I just um, highlight the fact that we're, we can be trusted um, with confidential information. 
Seven, and we'll talk more about this later, is we are a business-to-business crypto infrastructure provider. So if you're a bank and you don't have native uh, crypto capabilities, if you're a fintech platform, if you're a challenger bank, uh, you can come to us and, and ask us to act as a sub-custodian in the bank's case uh, and an execution platform, or you can do an, an integration or a white labeling. So that whole, we, we should talk more about um, the fact that we can white label solutions. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you, uh, are you able to disclose different platforms that you guys help power on the B2B infrastructure side? Uh, SoFi and Revolut are, are, are two notable names that I think a lot of people would, would uh, recognize, but we have about, in, in my sort of finance lingo, we have 50 introducing brokers in the platform. So I, I think the, the high level here is that um, if institutions want to uh, buy and hold crypto directly, they can come to us for that. Um, if instead they want to give their end customers the ability to participate in, in crypto, uh, we can facilitate that. Three more points. Um, we've yeah, got the biggest finish that top 10. I know we only, only got through six or seven. So, so we had the big, biggest balance sheet in the world and, and we, and we, we were in the space rather. Um, but we put it to work on behalf of clients. And so we provide true credit intermediation. So we'll talk more about that later as well. Nine, I think we're the best long-term partner. So, so what I've learned is uh, this space moves fast. Uh, and, and so, you know, generic Bitcoin custody today might be something else, you know, in, in the future. And I think you want to make a long-term uh, investment in a partner that's going to evolve and stay in the forefront of innovation. And 10, I know long time getting here, we make it easy. So, so and we've got all the available resources um, to, to, to handhold, uh, to give white club service, to give education. Um, and so we're, we're, we're really enthusiastic about uh, welcoming, you know, new, new players to the space. Yeah, man, I think, again, for us, we're customers of your trading platform. And I think for us, as we were uh, diving into the Bitcoin ecosystem, we were evaluating different players and we were pitched certain things by different groups. We didn't, at the time when we were you know, starting our due diligence process, we weren't fully aware of the, the institutional capabilities at Coinbase. And so it's been an eye-opening journey for us to see just what you guys have built, the scale of what you built, and then also the most important questions we get from our customers are around trust, security, and insurance. As you mentioned, the uh, largest insurance policy, some of the best cybersecurity capabilities, and, and the fact that you're a public company, the level of scrutiny that goes into all that is also enhanced relative to some other uh, companies that are private in the space. I want to talk about uh, Bitcoin and crypto. You, know, you I think, uh, as we mentioned in the open at uh, Barclays, you helped pioneer a digital bank prototype. Um, and you, you started doing a lot of due diligence on the asset class in 2017, 2018, as many people did as it sort of burst into the public consciousness with that first rally uh, to about $20,000. I'm talking about Bitcoin in that regard, but how in your view has the cryptocurrency market evolved and how is it different today than it was in 2017, 2018? So if I were, a ton has changed, but if I put my finger on just one thing and point to it, I'd say custody. So, so custody and settlement, I think they're, they're really important things. And so, um, I think that was the linchpin um, and, and having a, a regulated, qualified custodian. So now that that's there, there are lots of different ways that you can buy. Uh, there's lots of different ways you can sell. You can do interesting things that you can run bots. You can do tons of different things to participate in buying and selling. But if you can't store it safely and if you can't you know, sort of have the complexity of storing your own sort of private keys and track it away, it becomes really, really difficult. So I think the, the Coinbase custody solution that abstracts away a lot of the difficulty um, in engaging with digital assets, I think was the breakthrough. Now, on top of that, we can layer on 
the trading platform, financing, and all the things that uh, people that trade asset classes like equities and FX and others that have grown accustomed to. Right. And in terms of the institutionalization of the asset class, something that we've talked about, we think it's going to be a big price driver and, and eventually a dampener of volatility as more strong long-term hands uh, start buying Bitcoin and other digital assets. But from what segments of the institutional market are you seeing the biggest uptick in interest? You talked about the fact that you guys are discreet. You don't have to necessarily name names, although there's been you know leaks over the last six to 12 months about you know big insurance companies, endowments um, that, that have bought into Bitcoin without publicly disclosing it. But from what segments of that institutional world are you seeing the most interest? So uh, early adopters were pensions and endowments. Um, they've, I would say, in, in some sense, long been in this space. But there's a there's a, a an increasingly larger deployment of capital coming you know from them. Uh, when I think about uh, hedge funds, in particular macro hedge funds and and multi strat hedge funds, and so probably the biggest new entrant over the course of the past nine months has been macro funds, really scaling up their activity. Um, I've I've also seen some equity funds and credit funds uh, starting to enter the space along with systematic uh, as well. Um, Three, I would say you've, you've seen uh, it reported that U.S. banks are looking to get into the space, perhaps searching for subcustodial and execution partners. And so I think that banks have concluded that digital assets are part of their future. And I'm seeing an uptick in activity. And I anticipate the fact that we'll have some large U.S. banks trading cryptocurrency uh, before the end of the year. Um, corporates. So corporates, uh, you've seen the big splash by MSDR. Um, Michael Saylor sort of plays the trail there, and we've had a lot of fast follows. When I think about corporates they're, they're, that, that arrive on our doorstep, um, they talk about it in two ways. One is the hard-headed CFO or treasurer who um, has an obligation to consider what's owned in treasury and is, is exploring the idea of owning a pretty significant chunk of Bitcoin. So that's one, that's one way um, that I meet corporates. The other way is a corporate who says, you know what? I think this digital economy is really going to happen. I need to position my firm to participate in commerce, uh, payroll. And as a consequence of conducting those activities, we're going to wind up having a bit of Bitcoin and or other cryptocurrencies. And so we're not going to make a giant splash uh, in terms of our, of our treasury you know, allocation, but we do want to position the firm to, to, uh, to participate uh, in the space going forward. So uh, corporates, who have I left out? So family offices and foundations have been, you know, involved and, in, you know, increasingly, increasingly more insurance companies. So I had a pretty memorable um, experience with an insurance company and its top leadership a couple of weeks ago, uh, where they actually started the conversation. Instead of asking me what we could offer, they said, we thought through, uh, you know, 10 or 11 different use cases uh, for, for stablecoin. And so we thought about, you know, accepting uh, premiums uh, in USDC. We're talking about uh, paying out after cap bond events in USDC, and, the, and a whole myriad of, of other sort of use cases around around, around payments. And then, of course, uh, we've got that large sort of last bucket, which, which is uh, introducing brokers. And I scope in, you know, fintech platforms and PayPal's and um, you know all sorts of uh, brokerages and challenger banks, etc. And that's the world the world that I'm I'm also running hard after, where they where I hope that they'll adopt. Uh, some of the the infrastructure that we can provide them to, to power those flows. Yeah, I mean, you've seen places like PayPal, Venmo, SoFi introduced it as they sort of built out their build out their suite, you know, full suite of financial services. Are there others that you're, you know, in, in contact with that you think that 
all these neo bank, digital banks, and even traditional banks are going to eventually all onboard uh, crypto capability, or, or do you think that's several years down the line? It feels like a mega trend, doesn't it? I mean, it's happening across that. As I rattle through those different client segments, there's not really a segment that I think is sleeping. I mean, right. I didn't I didn't get to asset managers yet, but you know, we haven't seen um, we haven't seen a Wellington, a Vanguard, you know, enter the space. But you know, who knows? Um, uh, I, I feel like they're slow-moving giants, but uh, the space also is lacking, um, from my perspective, it's la lacking um, a full suite of, uh, of competing sort of options um, for right. not just, the, you know, we'll, we'll get to ETFs and ho hopefully one day soon they're, they're coming. But I, I do also think that funds that can, that can cre create uh, structured products so that they have sort of capped downsides and custom payouts, I think is, is also coming soon. So let's talk about that ETF question. So there's there's a variety of different views. Our sort of base case view, based on conversations we've had um, with with former officials, and you know, not necessarily people that are directly involved in the decision making process, but who have knowledge of the way these type of organizations and, and departments and government think, who think that maybe we'll get an ETF by the end of 2021, late 2021 is sort of our base case. Do you agree with that? And what are the implications if we do get the approval of an ETF or several ETFs uh, on the business at Coinbase and, and what will be continue to be the differentiator that you guys offer in terms of people that are looking to uh, transact in the space? I don't have any insight uh, in, in terms of whether it'll be this year or next year or even the year after. Um, I, I do feel that the, the marketplace you know, wants one. Uh, and I feel like the, the backdrop or at least the, um, I think it's constructive. And so when I reflect about the sort of cascade of of, of events that happened this year, um, which in part were, were led by, um, you know, the OCC allowing, you know, lifting the prohibition on banks to custody uh, digital assets and allowing, you know, PayPal, uh, a non-depository institution to enter the space. I, I think it, it sort of points in the right direction. So I can't, I can't be more specific on timing, but I, right. I, I do, I do think that that will come. And, you know, with, with, with respect to what happens at that moment, I, I, I think it's just an, another way for for mass adoption um, and participation in the space. You know, it's kind of easy to buy a ticker um, if, if you if you don't want to you know open a coin Coinbase account, which by the way is is super easy as well. Yeah, and an interesting thing that we've seen we saw Jay Clayton, the former SEC chairman, joined uh, the board of One River Asset Management, a significant player in the digital asset space. You saw Brian Banks uh, join Binance as the head of their U.S. business as they try to build out a U.S. business. So you're seeing all these former regulators jump into the digital asset space. We find it uh, hard to believe that those types of people would be joining this ecosystem if there wasn't uh, some constructive level of regulation coming down the pike. Um, but also relating to the institutional market, are there certain crypto assets that are dominating your conversations with these institutions? Is it 95% Bitcoin and the other 5% is Ethereum and and uh, you know in, any other players in the space is it 100% Bitcoin is it more of a mix what's that breakdown uh, that you're having in conversations with institutions about crypto assets? I would say a year ago I started it was almost you know 99% Bitcoin for institutions. Through the progression of last year, it shifted to more 80/20 between um, you know the base case for Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then I'd say uh, some of the, the the macro funds have gone uh, outside of the, the the two main liquid and are probably invested in a handful of other currencies. And so there's a pretty quick progression, I think, once someone 
you know, typically it, it tends to be Bitcoin as their first investment. And then it, it feels like uh, Ethereum is, it, it is on the fast follow. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. We talked about institutions. So an interesting question that I ask several guests that come on the show are sovereign governments. So there's been uh, reports that Tomasic, which is a, a sovereign wealth fund based in Singapore, is potentially already been buying Bitcoin on its, on its uh, balance sheet or in its, in its portfolio. Uh, and suggestion by sort of Bitcoin maximalists that an ultimate uh, late part of the cycle, the super cycle that we're in, is when sovereign governments think that uh, they need to own Bitcoin on their own balance sheets as a, as a long-term store of value. Have you seen any interest from sovereign governments or do you think that's somewhere that we're headed? So 85 different central banks around the world are doing some sort of exploratory uh, work on having digital currencies. And so uh, I think you can read a little bit uh, into the psyche of sovereigns through, the, through that. Um, I, I do think it's a natural next progression for sovereigns that are heavily invested in natural resources or financial assets of any, of any type to really begin to consider you know, Bitcoin as a long-term store of value. So I think it's um, in scope uh, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if um, we had sovereign participation sometime soon. So you were at Barclays, before that you were at JP Morgan. As we've talked about uh, in this episode, you, you experienced what financial system 1.0 looked like. And now you're on the other side of it where you, you started to sort of uh, blend those two worlds in, in the later stages of your time at Barclays but now you're fully in the digital asset world. From your seat today, how much is traditional finance or finance 1.0 going to be disrupted by DeFi, by crypto assets, by blockchain technology? And what does that ecosystem ultimately look like? Let's go say five to 10 years down the line. Are those banks gonna be fully disintermediated and they're gonna to have to either merge or acquire with digital asset companies or, or be left behind? What does that world look like if you look five to 10 years down the road? That's a big question. Um, the the person with the crystal ball uh, crystal ball at the Coinbase is our founder Brian Armstrong. So my mom, I, I can only see out into the future, maybe six months, maybe eighteen months at best. Uh, so so he's really the best person to talk through DeFi. But uh, before I answer the question, I just want to widen the aperture a little bit, and I, I want to move it away from Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I want to talk about digital assets. So if, if you talk about digital assets, when we do that. Uh, I begin to think about tokenization of financial and physical assets, right? And so we're talking about uh, engaging with, with with assets other than those two, including stable coins. And when when you do that, all of a sudden you you, you sort of set the expectation to say, okay, well, well, hang on a second. You've got banks that are they do make massive payments, they move money around the world, they trade financial securities, they trade physical securities, they they do all these different things. And so I think it's just a, a natural and obvious pro progression for them to be able to transact in digital assets. I don't think it's about one disintermediating the, the other. I think right now we're in, the, we're in this sort of parabolic growth phase of, of having all sorts of, of, of institutions have the native uh, capability to actually transact, conduct business, commerce, payments, uh, and other forms of you know, lending um, with digital assets. And so I think that's where we're headed. I, I'm, I'm minded to make as many partnerships with banks, private banks, you know, market counterparties, everyone to, to, to grow what we call the crypto economy. Right. Um, and, and people are going to hear some uh, nice barking from my dog in the background here. So just don't mind that. But uh, 
do you think the Coinbase, to the extent you're able to talk about the direct listing, did that serve as, as validation for the digital assets world? How do you think in a post Coinbase being public world, uh, people are looking at digital assets any differently than they were before? I certainly hope it's it, it's another important step of, of establishing the crypto economy and having uh, you know validation uh, for this as an asset class. And so, I mean, every, everything that I see, um, and it's not just the direct public listing by itself, it, it's everything else. Uh, and, and so again, if I reflect about the who's who in digital assets these days in cryptocurrencies, it's it's sort of everyone. Um, and, and so, yes, I think it's a, a moment of validation and a, for, for, for the industry. Um, and it, it should just help to fuel further adoption. A couple more questions before we let you go. Um... Talk more about that B2B crypto infrastructure. How are you guys, uh, when did that side of the business start? How are you supporting those uh, institutions as they build out their crypto capabilities? And how big a part of that, uh, of the Coinbase business, do you think that'll be uh, in, in the coming years? So we, we've been powering, what well, again, my, my, my terminology here, introducing brokers, which is then anyone for whom uh, we help their end customers participate. And so, you know, white label and or, and or other things. So I think over time, it'll be an increasing focus, but it's important to have, you know, each person or institution have the ability to hold crypto directly through us and also find, you know, other other avenues. And so it's a pretty bespoke integration that or at least can be. Uh, and so you'll have firms that may want to design the specific customer experience they want for their, for their end client. And, and we can figure out, you know, interesting ways to, to help them achieve it. And so I think over time, it'll be an increasing focus uh, for, for the firm. Um, in terms of the the details around everything you guys do on the prime, prime broking side, um, could you go more in depth about all the different types of services you offer, um, you know, going a little more inside baseball here for, you know, maybe macro funds that, uh, that, that might be interested in using Coinbase? Yeah, sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the trading platform because I think it's pretty differentiated. So we have, let's start with, we have smart order routing. We have algorithmic execution. I think everyone pretty much knows what those are. Um, I would define us by saying that we're agency only on the institutional platform. So that, that is to say, um, if you're trading through our, our prime broker, uh, I don't have a competing uh, market maker desk uh, with Flow. So pure, pure agency. Um, because institutions um, can trade, you know, through our trading platform, these phenomenally uh, phenomenal volume. You, you, you have an API integration, a fixed integration. You could have it on your desktop. You could call my OTC desk. So lots of different ways to initiate trading. Uh, when that happens, um, when I said we, we have a, a big balance sheet, we're putting it to work on behalf of customers. So what that means is, um, when someone's doing their first trade, they might wire uh, a billion dollars, uh, you know, over to us that's sitting in a bank account. And then if they're initiating a big um, 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 purchase of let's say Bitcoin, what happens is they're, they're actually directing the working capital from our trading entity. And so it's that, it's that working capital that's going out to 12 different venues and getting the best possible price of, of Bitcoin in that millisecond. And, and, and so that's where I talk about the intermediation. So uh, if by chance there was something that went wrong operationally or otherwise on, a, on someone else's exchange at the time, then, then that, that, uh, and and institutional client wouldn't suffer loss. So so that's a really really big deal, and I think it's a differenti differentiating factor. There are there are other smart order routing platforms, but none of which I think afford the protection that we can give in the way that I just uh, described. A couple more things there. Um, 
we trade in an on the bus and all the exchanges. And so, you know, that like the more you trade, the less your fees are. And we, we, we pass that uh, straight through to our end clients. And so that's super important. And then we give uh, post-trade transparency. And so you'll see, and I know you've experienced it pretty cool. You get a post-trade report um, and, and you'll see exactly how the algos performed and what the, all the mini fills were. Um, another differentiating factor is, you know, how do you get billion dollar, multi-billion dollar trades done in a marketplace, which, which still trades pretty much like retail. And so the answer to that is, again, the trading platform. So we, we, we can uh, be thoughtful. So if you were to engage and, 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 and want to buy, you know, a, a billion dollars on a, on a Friday afternoon, we, we'd have a huddle with my, my trading team. We'd go through it. We'd look at market conditions. We'd make some recommendations on how, how to layer in some TWAPs. We might consider putting some dip catchers in there. Uh, so if we get this big move that we saw, you know, on Saturday night, we can be opportunistic and sort of uh, fill our boots at the time. And so, and then we, we begin to sort of work around the clock 24-7. And so every four to six hours, we get a report, we do a settlement, uh, we would assess the market conditions, we go faster, we go slower. It's, it, it's actually, um, I, I know you've seen it in action, but some of your, your viewers haven't, but it's it's literally poetry in motion. My partner, uh, Greg, it, are, you know. It, it's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, and, and as, as you mentioned, even you know, I think in Asia, uh, from people we've talked to who do on-chain analysis, there's a lot more leverage in the system among Bitcoin buyers in Asia. So you see the market oftentimes move overnight uh, more significantly than it does during regular trading hours in, in the US. And I think it's one of the things that's fascinating around Bitcoin is that the idea that financial markets uh, only trade during certain hours is, is, if you think about it, a little bit strange. Uh, you know, the fact that there's not constant price discovery taking place in markets. And uh, you know, you guys obviously do a good job of staying plugged in around the clock to get the best prices for your customers. In terms yeah. of yeah, go ahead, Brett. I was just saying, you know, what else is strange um, is so pivoting from the you know the market opens, the market closes. It's running a twenty four seven trading operation in perpetuity. And, and so uh, you mentioned Eric Peters uh, earlier from One River. He actually did a, a sort of tested us in a memorable moment where he wanted to see if it really was you know twenty four seven. And uh, he, he put in a giant sort of uh, series of orders and requests in on Thanksgiving morning. <laughs> so when people were traveling to see, and, and anyway, long story short there, um, we, we, we did deliver, got everything done, and it sort of tested the limits of what 24-7 really meant. Right. Yeah. Bitcoin never sleeps. Eric Peters is a brilliant guy. You know, we, we always compile sort of a handful of the best uh, written materials around Bitcoin and his initial letter to investors, as I, I think, in the Hall of Fame of of top uh, macro cases for Bitcoin. So I would encourage everybody to read that. Last question I have for you, what stage, you know, I, I hate using the tired baseball analogy of what inning are we in? Are we in the third inning, the bottom of the second, whatever it may be, but you talked about how there's, there's still a large number of institutions that are either performing due diligence or are currently invested in Bitcoin that we're not even aware of. What, what level of penetration and saturation within the institutional world, do you expect to see, let's say in the next 12 to 18 months relative to where we are now? Are we are we seeing a ton of people that are currently invested? Are we seeing more people that are in the due diligence phase? Are we seeing more people that are now just becoming crypto curious? Where do you think things are gonna move in the next year to year and a half? So, so if I reflect on 25 years of bringing new asset classes to institutional investors, and I think about exotic rates, I think about creditors, I think about you know, uh, leverage structured products. And I think about the, the cycle of adoption, it seems like it's about three to five years, right? If you're going full speed. And so it starts with niche players, it works its way up to medium size, then eventually there's adoption at the top. 
what happened in this past year is just phenomenal. So what happened is we sort of skipped a few years and we went straight to the fifth year. I was going to say, when, when does the clock start? Did it start in 2017? Did it start on April 20th of 2020 when Brett Tejpal joined Coinbase? Or when did it start? I, I don't know where the start is because there's, uh, there's a, a lot of, I, I owe a lot to everyone that came before before me to set this uh, wonderful stage, uh, wonderful business up. But all I can tell you is that it's it's gone from, fringe players that sort of what I described that first kind of two years in, in my mind on adoption straight to the almost the sort of fourth or fifth sort of year where you've got full scale adoption. And so right now I don't see anything that's going to come in between, um, you know, that's going to prevent that full, full scale adoption from happening. I mean, usually again, you, you have clusters of activity here. It's hedge funds, it's alternative asset managers, it's family offices, but it's not banks and it's, you know, it's, it's not the biggest funds, but now, everyone's um, you know, look, looking at it and, and, and minded, I think, to deploy capital in the space. And so, I don't know, um, it, it just feels like if we continue at this pace, we're gonna see adoption, full-scale adoption sooner than we think. Right. Well, Brett, it's been a pleasure to have you here on Salt Talks. Uh, you know, we, we're very happy customers and partners of Coinbase. Look forward to having you guys also involved in our Salt Conference in September as well. Um, you know, helping to institutionalize the asset class and educate people that still might be on the skeptical uh, end of the spectrum, which to be honest with you, I was for, for several years, but as we've dug deeper into it, it's sort of hard to argue with the inevitability of uh, digital assets and just the, the sort of reframing of our entire uh, financial system. But thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's awesome. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with Brett Tejpal from Coinbase. Again, we love educating uh, people in our community, either that already know a lot about digital assets or are just getting started on that intellectual journey. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, including a whole series we've done, probably 20 or 30 now, uh, on the digital asset space, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called SaltTube. Uh, we're also on social media. On Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook if you're so inclined to follow us. And please spread the word again about these Salt Talks, especially I think it's important to educate people on what's happening in the digital asset space. If you have uh, an institution that's becoming crypto curious, uh, we'll, we'll feel free to pass along Brett's email to you and he can answer all your questions on that front. Uh, but on behalf of the entire Salt production team here behind the scenes, uh, as well as myself uh, signing off here from Salt Talks for today, we hope to see you back here again soon.